Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Uh, Catherine Hayo is a Canadian climate scientist, but she's a professor at Texas Tech University, where she oversees the climate uh, science division there. The United Nations has called her a champion of the earth. I mean, what a moniker that would be. I love that. That's better than Rocky. Uh, she's the champion of the earth of science and innovation. If you Google her name, you'll find her TED Talks and many resources that are available. If you go to onechurch.to slash planet earth, you're not only going to see a number of resources that Catherine uh, Hale is recommending if you want to double click into the subject matter, but also too, there's great resources from Dr. Peter Newman and myself for this previous weekend's creation theology uh, uh, time we had teaching. So make sure you check that link out. Now, Dr. Hayho also is a follower of Jesus. She's actually married to a pastor, lives in Texas, but grew up in the GTA. And I know that you're going to find her message challenging and hopefully just encouraging and rewarding. I'd encourage you throughout her talk, any questions, put it in the chat room. We're going to curate it. And at the end of our gathering, I'm going to ask her live these questions. And I know she's going to have a great response. Our Q&A time has been fantastic already in our two previous gatherings. I know you're going to enjoy it. So make sure you ask lots of great questions. And without further ado, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Hi, my name is Catherine Hayhoe. I'm a climate scientist. And the reason why I'm a climate scientist is because I'm a Christian. Let me explain. I am from Toronto, grew up in Etobicoke. My dad was a science teacher, and actually my grandma, his mom, had a degree in science education too. So some of my first memories include science. Going to the park when I was four years old, it seemed like it was the middle of the night, it was probably only 10 o'clock at night, learning how to find the Andromeda galaxy through binoculars. Every family trip we went on, my dad would lug a giant telescope with us, going down to the Outer Banks for March break so we could see Halley's Comet. It's no surprise that I grew up with the idea that science is the coolest thing you could possibly study, and also with the idea that it can't be in conflict with our faith. As Martin Luther said, what is nature or creation other than God's second book? If we believe the same person is responsible for both the Bible and the universe— then how could studying one possibly be in conflict with studying the other? Given all this, it's not surprising that when I started at U of T, it only took about a year or so before I realized I wanted to be an astrophysicist. By second year university, I was working on the telescope at the top of the McLennan building, monitoring variable stars. I was calling the HMV store on Young Street when they had a giant spotlight on the roof that would circle the sky, telling them they had to stop circling because it was messing up my observations. But just before I finished my undergraduate degree, I still needed another breadth requirement. I looked around and I saw a brand new class over in the geography department in Sid Smith on climate science. And I thought to myself, oh, that looks interesting. Why not take it? 
Now, up until then, I had learned about climate change, of course. I had learned about air pollution, deforestation, biodiversity loss, climate change. I had learned about a whole host of environmental issues. And I thought of them like this. These are environmental issues that are real, that humans are having on our environment, and environmentalists are the people who take care of those issues and try to fix them, and the rest of us wish them well. Well, I took that class, and it completely shocked me, because that's where I learned that climate change is not only an environmental issue, it's an everything issue. It literally affects every aspect of our lives on this planet. It affects the air that we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, the safety of our homes, and most of all, it affects the poorest and most vulnerable people more than anyone. The very ones who have done the least to contribute to the problem, they are the ones who are most harmed by the impacts of a changing climate. And that's not fair. The single best description of climate change, in my opinion, comes from the U.S. military. They call it a threat multiplier. In other words, nine times out of 10, or really 99 times out of 100, climate change isn't creating a new problem that hasn't existed before. Rather, it's taking problems that already exist and exacerbating them or making them worse. Like what? Like poverty, hunger, lack of access to basic things that we take for granted, like clean water, basic healthcare, education, equity, and more. And here's the thing. I knew what poverty looked like because when I was nine years old, we moved down to Colombia in South America. My parents taught at a local school. They worked at a local church. We often took trips to visit little churches out in the country. And I had friends who lived in homes that were built of mud bricks or cardboard boxes with tin roofs. I knew what it looked like when the rains came. I knew what it looked like when you didn't have enough to feed your family. I knew what that looked like firsthand. And so when I found out that climate change affects people who have the least, the most, and when I found out that climate change was a threat multiplier that affects all of these other issues that are already plaguing our world and that there's no way to fix them if we don't fix climate change first, I thought to myself, well, I serendipitously have the exact skill set that you need to study this global issue, and it's so urgent, surely we'll fix it soon. So I decided I should be a climate scientist instead, and I could do everything I could to help, and when we fixed it, I could go back to being an astrophysicist. I was a little optimistic. That was a long time ago, and I'm still a climate scientist today. But the reality is, even though the situation is worse today than it was back in that day, we are also a lot further along the path to recognizing how serious it is and what we can do to fix it. Let's just take a step back here, though, and just make sure we're all on the same page. Because when it comes to climate change, there's a lot of questions, there's a lot of uncertainty. How do we even know the thing is real? How do we know it's humans? And why does it matter to us? So what is climate change? This short video explains. Our planet has this amazing natural blanket. It's made up of carbon dioxide, methane, and water vapor. The sun's energy shines down and goes right through that blanket as if it were a window. It hits the earth and the earth warms up. The earth gives off heat energy. But just like a blanket traps our body heat on a cold night, in the same way this amazing natural blanket 
traps the Earth's heat, keeping our planet almost 60 degrees Fahrenheit, about 30 degrees Celsius, warmer than it would be otherwise. The problem is, we're adding more of these heat-trapping gases to the atmosphere, and we are in essence wrapping an extra blanket around our planet. What would happen if you were sleeping at night and somebody snuck in, like my grandma used to do, and put an extra blanket over you? You'd start to sweat because you didn't need that blanket. That's what's happening to our planet. Our planet is running a fever, a fever that is a direct result of this extra blanket that we are wrapping around our planet. Pretty simple, isn't it? It is an extra blanket that we're wrapping around the planet. Now, how do we really know that the planet is warming? Well, it turns out that not only do all of the thermometers we have, all the satellites we have, all the ocean buoys and scientific instruments we have, not only do they paint a very clear picture of a warming planet, but we don't even need scientific observations to tell that the planet is warming. A lot of the evidence is right in our own backyards. Like what? Like trees blooming earlier in the year plants flowering earlier in the year. My birthday's in April, and I always used to hope that the tulips in our front yard would be in bloom by the time it was my birthday. And growing up, sometimes they were and sometimes they weren't. Well, now, when I visit home in April, the tulips have already bloomed and gone. They're coming weeks earlier in the year. And that's not all. We see glaciers retreating, sea ice is shrinking, sea level is rising. We see changes all over the place. That's how we know that it really is warming. In fact, if we look around the entire planet, you know how many independent lines of evidence there are telling us that the world is warming? 26,500 of them. Yes, climate change is real. How do we know it's humans, though? Well, we climate scientists don't just study how humans affect climate. We are the ones who study natural factors, too. So when we see climate changing, we don't automatically assume it's got to be humans because we know that climate has changed in the past for natural reasons. So the first thing we do, and this is what scientists have been doing for more than 100 years, that's how long we've known about climate change, the first thing that scientists did was we said, okay, could it possibly be the sun, for example? In the past, sometimes the sun has gotten a little bit brighter and that makes it warmer here on Earth, and sometimes it gets a little bit dimmer and that makes it a little bit cooler. But it isn't the sun because it turns out that over the last 50 years or so, the sun's energy has actually been going down, not up. So if it were the sun, we'd be getting cooler right now, not warmer. Then people say, well, what about volcanoes? I hear that one big volcanic eruption produces more pollution than humans. Volcanic eruptions are very powerful, and they do produce a lot of particles. But you know what those particles do? They actually act as an umbrella to cool the Earth. That's right, a really powerful volcanic eruption. And we actually don't have too many of those, usually one every, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100 years. We had a big one back in 1992 called Mount Pinatubo. Whenever we have a really, really big volcanic eruption, it shoots all of these particles all the way up to the upper atmosphere, where they spread out around the world, acting like an umbrella reflecting the sun's energy back to space. They actually cool the planet down. They don't warm it. And then people often say, well, how do you know it just isn't a natural cycle? It's because we know what natural cycles do. 
Natural cycles are like a teeter-totter or a seesaw. They just move heat from east to west or north to south or ocean to atmosphere and back again. They can't create heat out of nothing, they just move it around. And so today we see that it isn't a case of heat being just moved from one part of the earth to the other. The entire planet is warming. The atmosphere is warming, the ocean's warming, the land surface is warming, the ice is melting. The whole thing is melting. It isn't a natural cycle. The last natural suspect people often invoke are the orbital cycles that cause the ice ages. I actually learned about these myself in my astrophysics classes, not my climate classes. It's true that changes in the Earth's orbit around the Sun over time are responsible for the ice ages, but we aren't still getting warmer from the last ice age. Warming after the last ice age peaked thousands of years ago, and in fact today we should be very, very, very slowly and gradually be getting cooler, ready to head into the next ice age sometime in the next, oh, 1,500 years or so. But instead, we're getting warmer faster and faster. Every single natural factor has an alibi. That's how we know that this really is humans. So the last question then is, well, why does it matter? If it's real and it is caused by humans, why does it matter to us? It isn't because an increase in the average temperature of the entire planet of one or two or even three or four degrees Celsius really matters to you or me where we live. It's because all this heat affects all kinds of other things that do matter to us. We see that our average temperatures are increasing and our winters are getting warmer. This might sound like a good thing, but Cold winters are what keep a lot of invasive species and pests and diseases at bay. So just for an example, I grew up, you know, running through the woods every summer. Our family has a, had a cottage up in Muskoka, and I would be outside all day. Well, I never saw a tick. Never. But my husband, who grew up in Virginia, and he grew up running through the woods in a horse farm in Virginia, every night his mother would have to check him for ticks because they had ticks all through the forest. Well, deer ticks are a major carrier of Lyme disease. And now, because our winters are so warm, we actually have deer ticks in southern Ontario carrying Lyme disease like used to be all the way down in Virginia when I was a child. That is one impact of warmer winters. What else is happening? Well, a big way that climate change affects us and the places where we live is by loading the weather dice against us. What do I mean by that? Well, wherever we live, we always have a chance of rolling a double six. Like what? Like a heavy rain event or a flood, a heat wave, a storm, some crazy type of weather. That just happens naturally, right? But as the planet warms decade by decade by decade, it's as if climate change is sneaking in and taking one of those numbers and then another one of those numbers and then another one and changing it into a six too, and then even a seven. Where I live in Texas now, the city of Houston has had three 500-year flood events in three years. And you might say, how can that be? That's not possible. It is when climate change is loading the dice against us. We have seen crazy rainfalls and floods in Toronto and Calgary and other places like that. What else do we see? Out west, we're seeing that the wildfire season is getting a lot worse. 
as winters are warmer, there's all kinds of beetles in the western forests. And instead of dying off in the cold winter, they overwinter. So you've got multiple generations of beetles the next year. They eat millions of acres of forest, then it's all dead or dying, and then along comes a fire, and it burns millions of acres. Up north, we see that permafrost, what used to be permanently frozen ground, is now thawing and crumbling, endangering many northern towns and villages and the rails and the winter roads that they typically use to get their supplies. Along the coasts, we see that sea level is rising, and this risks both high tide, what they call sunny day flooding, as well as permanent inundation of places where people actually live. No matter where we live, we are already seeing the impacts of climate change here, now, and today. And as always, whether we live here in Canada or on the other side of the world, it's the poorest who suffer most. A few years ago, I was in Halifax to give a keynote talk at a big fundraising banquet for an organization called Add Some for Women and Children. They help women and children in the greater Halifax area who are experiencing homelessness. As I walked up to give my speech, the sponsor from Canadian Tire shook my hand politely and said, so glad you're here. But I could see him wondering, why is a climate scientist giving the keynote a talk at a banquet for a homeless shelter? And really, who could blame him? Adson runs an emergency shelter for women and offers longer-term housing and support programs to help rebuild people's lives. And so the people who were there in that ballroom tonight were there because they cared about their community. Where did climate change come in? When we picture who or what is going to be most affected by climate change, it typically isn't people living on the streets of a city in southern Canada. Usually the first image that comes to mind is a polar bear an animal that makes its home thousands of miles north who very few of us have seen in person and even fewer of us ever factor into our everyday decision-making. But here's the thing. I had spent that day previously with Sherry, the executive director of ADSUM, and she had taken me around Halifax to their various facilities and I had met many of the women they work with and she had been telling me about so many of the challenges and difficulties that they had been coping with over the last few years. For example, when it rains and it floods, they have so many people that they have to try to find places for because they can't live on the streets. When it's incredibly hot out, where do those people go? When heavy rainfall or even hurricanes, because of course Halifax gets hit by hurricanes too, when it floods the streets and there's no public transportation, people often can't make it to their jobs or their doctor's appointments or their mental health appointments. So they have to arrange transportation for people. There's all kinds of ways that heavy rain, flood, extreme heat, hurricanes and storms are already making Sherry's life and her work more difficult and are already directly harming the women and children who Adsum is trying to help today. So in my talk, you can probably guess, I focused on how climate change disproportionately affects women and children more than men, especially in poor countries, but I also talked about how it disproportionately affects the poor and the homeless. And I gave specific examples from around the world and specific examples from Halifax and from Canada too. And at the end, that Canadian Tire sponsor was the first person up the platform and he grabbed my hands and he shook it and he said, I have to confess, I was wondering why they invited you. 
And I didn't say that I could see it on his face when he first greeted me. But he said, now I understand it completely makes sense. Why? Because he got it. To care about climate change, we don't have to be a certain type of person. No, I'm absolutely convinced that everyone already has the values they need to care about climate change. We just haven't connected the dots. And here's the thing. If we're Christians, how much more? do we have every reason to care? In fact, I'm convinced that if we take the Bible seriously, we would be out at the front of the line demanding climate action. Because from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, the Bible never mentions climate change, obviously, but it mentions a lot of things that are directly relevant to our attitudes towards this threat multiplier that affects every living thing on this planet especially the poorest and most vulnerable and those who have no voice. For example, in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God said, let us make human beings in our image, make them reflecting our nature. Most of us have heard that verse. I probably learned about it in Sunday school myself. But how often have you heard the reason? Because it actually goes on, it says, so that. There's a reason that we are made in God's image, and did you know what that reason is? The reason is so that we can rada every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. And living things, of course, include other humans as well as animals. So what does rada mean? Often it is translated, as it was originally in the King James Version, as dominion. And so people sometimes say, well, that just means that we can take anything we want from the earth and do whatever we want to it. And then when we're done, God will just push the eject button and take us away. Well, that's not what dominion actually means. That's what domination means, and that's not the same word. To figure out what rada really means, I think the best thing to do is to look in a few other places in the Bible where the same word is used and see what it says there. So one example is found in Psalm 72. It talks about God ruling, and it says, May he also rada from sea to sea in order to what? to extract everything of value from it, to make it do whatever he wants? No. It says to Rada to deliver the needy when they cry for help, the afflicted and him who has no helper, to have compassion on the poor and the needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. That doesn't sound a lot like domination, does it? It sounds more like serving, protecting, and taking care of. Then in Matthew 20, Jesus was speaking, and he said, You've observed how the godless rulers, Rada, so he's comparing two different sets of people here. He says, The godless let a little power go to their heads. So you could definitely see some domination there, right? But he says, It is not going to be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. This is what the Son of Man has done. He came to serve not to be served. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there are many verses in the New Testament too that speak to God's love and care for what we would often view as some of the most insignificant aspects of creation, the lilies in the field, right? And the birds and the butterflies in the air. But we can't forget that not only are we called to care for all living things on this planet, we are also called to care for and love each other. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, Paul makes this very clear. He says, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself 
up for you. And in the book of John, Jesus says that we Christians should be recognized by something. By what? By our love for others. And today we have a situation that is not loving. What is not loving is for us to be burying our heads in the sand and putting our fingers in our ears, so to speak, and saying, oh no, this is no big deal, when our sisters and our brothers and other living things are already suffering from the impacts of our use of these fossil fuels, that when we burn them are wrapping this extra blanket around the planet that we did not need. That's not all that fossil fuels do either. Did you know that when we burn the fossil fuels, they also produce air pollution? That's that yucky-looking smog that you see lying over places like L.A. and Salt Lake City and New Delhi. And it's even that low-level ozone, you know, when it, when it gets too high in Toronto, they actually put out a warning saying, you know, don't go jogging outside or anything like that because of the ozone levels. That comes from burning fossil fuels. And around the world, almost 9 million people die every year prematurely from breathing in fossil fuels. That's over three times the number of COVID deaths. And don't get me wrong, every single premature death is one death too many. But we all know about COVID and we all know that there is a tremendous worldwide mortality from COVID, but how many of us know that nearly 9 million people die every single year from burning fossil fuels? Not only that, but there is a connection between COVID and fossil fuels. It turns out that if we live somewhere where there's a lot of air pollution and we've been breathing in air pollution for a long time, our lungs are vulnerable and weak. So when we're exposed to coronavirus, we're more likely to get COVID. When we get COVID, we're more likely to get very sick and even die from it. And then here's where the justice issue comes in. Often, the people who can't afford to live somewhere better are the ones who are most exposed to air pollution. Let me give you a very concrete example. In the city of Chicago, which is very similar to Toronto, just rotate it 90 degrees and put it on a different lake. In the city of Chicago, a third of the population is black, but over 70% of the COVID deaths are among the African-American population. What do they think is the connection? They suspect it has a lot to do with air pollution. So why do we care about climate change? Why do you and I care about it? We care about it because, first of all, no matter where we live, it takes so many of the risks we already face today and it makes them worse. We care about climate change also, though, because it affects real people today, especially the poorest and the most vulnerable, and that is not fair. And most of all, we care about a changing climate because of who God has made us. God has taken out our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. God has made us people who can and should be recognized by their love for others. And that is why we Christians are the perfect people to care about climate change. Wow. (laughs) All weekend. uh, What a great teaching. And I can already see in the chat room so busy, so many great questions being asked. But I want to welcome into our chat room, uh, Catherine Hayhoe. Hello, Dr. Hayhoe. Hi, it's great to be with you here today. I, listen, I asked you this in the previous gatherings. I'm going to start out, what's the weather like in Texas today? I assume you're in Texas today. 
I am. It's pretty warm here, but what a lot of people don't realize is it does snow, and sometimes it even has snowed in April here, just like in Toronto. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, we've just come off a week of snow and cold. So yesterday was a little bit warmer, and uh, you. but you have given me a fresh appreciation for the value of winter. Speaking as someone that loves the heat in the summer, I, I see that winter and even prolonged winters are very valuable, though. <laughs> Part of God's design. Part of God's design. Let's start with a question, uh, just to get us started. What are Christians supposed to do with, with everything you just said? What are we supposed to do with this? Mm-hmm. Well, as Christians, who we already are is the perfect person to care. That's who God has made us. Mm. And failing to care and failing to act on this issue is really a failure of love. And when we're told that we Christians are to be recognized for our love for others, by definition, that means that we're going to be caring for people's physical needs. If they don't have enough food to eat, they don't have a safe place to live, they don't have access to the resources we do, as well as looking to the future. So, first of all, the most important thing we can do is to use our voices to talk about this issue, because it turns out we don't. And if we don't talk about it, why would we care? And if we don't care, why would we ever do anything about it? Part of what we can also do is recognize that we're not alone. The metaphor that the Bible uses for us Christians is that of a body. Each one of us has different abilities and talents, a different role to play in the church and in the world. So I'm also a huge advocate of joining organizations that share your values. There's a great one right here in Southern Ontario called Arasha. Um, I put a link in the chat already, Arasha Canada. They have programs for parents and kids where you clean up watersheds and plant trees. But you can also use your voice to advocate for changes and to educate people about the risks in the place where you work, your kid's school, in your community, your neighborhood, obviously in our city, in our province, talking about it, advocating for change, and even using our right as citizens to vote is all an important way that each of us can, and we already are really, making a difference. Okay, uh, just picking up on that because, you know, you make a case obviously in, in your talk that I thought was compelling and very interesting. I'm sure you did once your CEO that you tie climate change to acts of love and even justice for marginalized communities and even oppressed communities. Um, it, with, with that, uh, sadly, though, most of the context for most of the conversations I've heard around climate change are actually in the political arena, not, not in those love and justice arenas. Uh, how, do we, how do we navigate the whole politicized nature of climate change as a follower of Jesus and as someone just listening to your talk? How, how do you navigate that in your own life? Well, unfortunately, so I live in the States now. Here, issues are even more politicized often than in Canada, but that politicization is creeping across the border already. And we see that in the U.S. today, coronavirus is the third most politically polarized issue in the country where people are incredibly divided based on how they vote. Race and racial justice and equity is number two. Right. And climate change is number one. So those are the issues on which people most disagree, on which the, is, it's most contentious, on which they most argue. So how can we as Christians be salt and light in the world on such contentious issues? I believe it's with starting with what we believe to be true. And we believe that we are called to love others. We believe that God created this world and gave us responsibility over it. And so when we speak to what we believe, we might not make you know, people on either side happy about it, but we are speaking truth. And I believe that's what we're called to do. 
That's really great. Well, there's so many questions that came in in this gathering. I'm going to start firing some at you, uh, Dr. Hayo, and feel free to respond. Maureen asks this great question. What is the greatest human contributor to climate change? What would it take to reverse it? And do you think this is, I love this last one. Do you think this is possibly realistic? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. Yeah. So, 75% of that extra blanket I referred to that we're wrapping around the planet comes from digging up and burning coal, gas, and oil. 25% of it comes from cutting down and burning trees and animal agriculture because ruminants like cows and sheep belch a lot of heat-trapping gases. Right. So how can we reverse this? Well, there's a great resource called Project Drawdown. They're going to drop a link in the chat right here to drawdown.org that lists over 100 great solutions. But let me just sort of categorize them. Number one, not be so wasteful. We waste over 65% of the energy we produce and over almost 60% of the food that we produce in this country. And the U.S. is just as wasteful. So reducing our waste, number one, eating our leftovers, buying some of those, you know, um, secondhand fruit and vegetables that I think they have a great app for that with, I think it's either Dominion or Loblaws has a fantastic app for that. Mm. Um, Not being so wasteful, be more efficient. The U.S. alone could cut its carbon emissions in half just through efficiency. Number two, transitioning our energy sources to clean energy, which we have so much of here in Canada. We have so much hydro we already use. Uh, Warren Buffett is building a giant wind farm in Alberta as we speak, transitioning to clean sources of energy that don't pollute our air, like I talked about before, and our water, then figuring out how to restore our natural ecosystems so they pull carbon back from the atmosphere. It turns out that carbon in the soil and carbon in plants and trees and ecosystems is fantastic. And there's already a hundred times more carbon in the forests and soils around the world than humans have dug up and burned from coal and gas and oil. So really restoring our forests is a huge thing that we can do, especially in Canada. But then we also have to figure out how to transition our food systems and how to make sure that they're not cutting down and burning trees. And a big part of that, again, is reducing our food waste, increasing the amount of plants that we eat. Um, You know how um, Tim Hortons used to have that plant-based breakfast wrap that they had and things like that. Um, Looking for where we get our food and also ensuring that in poor countries, they have the resources they need to get electricity from clean sources like the wind and the sun, to clean up their air and their water, and continue to grow and improve their own lifestyle, their well-being, and their economies as well. Uh, You told a story in one of our early gatherings about an initiative in India right now uh, to uh, you kind of almost leapfrog right into being more uh, ecologically uh, viable in terms of their uh, electric grid. Can you tell us a little bit about what they're doing there uh, just to inspire us and to help us to understand this is a global issue? Yeah. So often we feel like we're doing everything we can in Canada and nobody else is doing anything. Well, it's true. There are some laggards, but it turns out that China has more clean energy than any other country in the world. That's right, it's beating the pants off every other country. And India is also surging ahead. They have more green jobs than any other country, and they plan to replace all of their light bulbs with LEDs, and their goal is to be the first country to industrialize without being powered by coal. 
Around the world, there's almost a billion people who don't have access to electricity. And most of the reason for that is because they live in countries that don't have coal or gas or oil, and they can't afford to buy it from rich countries like us. So that's why I'm so excited that last year, 90% of new electricity installed around the world, much of it in very poor countries, was clean energy. Wow. And there's amazing programs like Solar Sisters that empowers women in sub-Saharan Africa, some of the poorest places in the world, to be able to sell solar lanterns and solar panels, things that they can use so that their kids can study at night, they can walk safely around at night, and they can help feed their family too. It's really incredible what's happening. That's fantastic. Here's a, a science question from Hannah B. She asked this, how do we know what greenhouse gas and temperature levels were like in the distant past? How is that being used to further justify human uh, contributions to global warming? That is such a fun question. I'm a scientist, so I love talking about the science. I thought so you'd love this So it turns out that we have... We have natural thermometers that track the history of the planet long before we humans were around with our thermometers. Our thermometers go back to the 1600s. But natural thermometers look like what? They look like ice cores. Scientists go up to Greenland, they go down to Antarctica, they go to some of the tallest mountains on Earth, and they drill ice cores. And those ice cores have little bubbles in them. And in those bubbles is a record of the temperature, the levels of heat trapping gases and more at the time when that bubble was sealed off from the atmosphere. And it's literally like layers. You can go back in time, hundreds, thousands, millions of years with these ice cores. You can do the same thing with tree rings, putting together tree ring records. The width and the density of the the ring tells you about temperature and rainfall that year. And there's one ring for every year putting together live and dead trees, they've gone back thousands of years in some locations. You can also use uh, ocean sediments. We also use pollen records. We even use human records of when the river froze and when they brought in the harvest, going Mm. back hundreds and even thousands of years. Like the cherry tree blossoms in Japan, they've kept a record of when those cherry trees have flowered for over 1,100 years. And today they are flowering on average three weeks earlier than any time in the last 1,100-year-old history. So that's how we know that the change that's happening today is unprecedented. We have never seen this much carbon going into the atmosphere this fast, as far back as all of our scientific records can do in the history of our planet. And that's why we know it's so serious, because climate is changing today faster than we humans have ever seen. It's not about saving the planet. The planet will still be orbiting the sun long after you or I are gone. It is literally about saving us. And that was actually, I just finished writing a book. It's not for sale yet, but you can pre-order it at Indigo. And what I did was, I have a copy here because I was just doing the final edits. I literally called it Saving Us. I checked with my husband who's a pastor to make sure it wasn't sacrilegious. And he said, no, (laughs) it makes sense. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Well, uh, okay. So, I mean, as we look at our role on the impact we're having on the planet, uh, Ange, Stacy, and Jaden S. ask, what is, what is Catherine's view on nuclear energy? Oh, that's a great question. So nuclear energy does not produce heat-trapping gases, but it does produce, the way we currently use it, it produces a lot of waste, uh, very toxic, dangerous waste. Also, currently, traditional nuclear power is very expensive. The only plant that they tried to build in the U.S. in the last 30 years in the Carolinas ended up running over budget so far that literally the the newspaper headline when they canceled the plant was, they just spent $9 billion 
billion, that's a B, digging a hole in the ground and then filling it back up. Wow. So that's why we haven't seen a lot of new nuclear today. But there are technological advances occurring. So Idaho National Labs in the States has actually created these tiny little micro-modular nuclear reactors that fit on the back of a truck. So you can put a number of them together, sort of cluster them to make a bigger plant. They are a lot cheaper, they are a lot safer, and they're testing them out right now in Utah. There's also reactors that burn old nuclear waste. Yeah, they really do. They burn nuclear waste. And so they produce a lot less waste. And there is eventually a holy grail, so to speak, called nuclear fusion. And nuclear fusion, it produces no waste of any kind. And it's incredibly safe. There's no meltdowns at all. China already has a nuclear fusion plant running on an experimental basis. But it's incredibly expensive, so we're not going to get there for a while. Even if we do, that would help with electricity, but it still doesn't take care of our liquid fuels. It doesn't take care of deforestation. It doesn't take care of our agriculture. So we really need a whole bunch of solutions. And that's why the Project Drawdown that I mentioned is such a great resource. If you check it out, they have one entry on nuclear, but they also have 99 entries on other things like conservation, agriculture, restoring mangrove forests, educating women and girls in poor countries, efficiency improvements, and of course, wind and solar as well. Fantastic. Uh, Tina T asks this, what are some tips, and I think you've already been unpacking this throughout the talk and even some of our Q&A, what are some tips we can do in our daily lives to help the cause, reduce our carbon footprint, slow down climate change? Also, any Christian organizations, I think you've already recommended them, uh, but to follow, uh, if we want to follow or contribute or donate to, and you know, this, uh, you know, we're doing it at a local level through Love Army, but We'd love to know. I think you've thrown some things in the chat, some organizations. I like that Solar Sisters in Sub-Saharan Africa. What a great uh, uh, organization to be a part of. But uh, first off, the first part of it, any tips for our daily lives? Oh, I love that question. Thank you so much for asking that because that's what we all want to know, right? Nobody wants to hear about a problem and then we're like, oh, well, what am I supposed to do about it? I have no clue. Tip number one, and I know this is going to sound kind of crazy, but believe me, it works. Tip number one is talking about it on our social media, in our conversations, at church, with our kids, with our neighbors, talking about why it matters and find out some really interesting stories from organizations that you can join, you can follow on social media. So some of my favorite organizations are organizations that share our faith and are working for climate action from a Christian perspective. I already mentioned Arasha Canada, The link to that is in the chat. And World Vision has a great post on climate change on their Instagram page just today. In fact, I was looking at it while while the video was running. There are also organizations like Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. You're only allowed to join if you're under the age of 30. Um, And there are many other organizations that specifically link what we as Christians think about loving others, about poverty, about hunger, and about caring about climate change. And in fact, The most recent post on my Instagram page lists, I think, 30 different organizations and encourages people to find one of those organizations to follow. And then you've got tons of great information that you can share with people when you have conversations. And of course, part of what we can talk about is what we do ourselves. So every year, I adopt two new low-carbon habits in addition to what I was already doing. And some things are pretty simple. Reducing food waste, I mentioned, is really important. Looking at where we get our electricity from. looking at how we travel, looking at whether we take public transportation or we drive, or we might consider a used electric car next time we have to buy a car, 
Um, yeah, changing our light bulbs works too. But all of these things are about doing something in our own lives and then talking to other people about what they can do too everywhere that we work, that we worship, that we're with other people. Listen, if you get a chance, I'm going to encourage you if you're on Instagram or, or Twitter or Facebook, you should follow uh, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe on those channels because uh, she's always giving great information. I follow her on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, always a great follow. And again, that will help you curate maybe some of the organizations you could actually connect with. I love this. Someone jumped in the chat room, M. Alas, and said this, does becoming a vegetarian make as big of an impact as my husband says it does? <laughs> so, so you're settling a marital dispute here. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, dear. So, so my marital dispute with my husband is whether we should eat leftovers or not. And I'm very firmly on the yes side of that dispute. <laughs> so, so our diet is an important part of, of our own personal carbon footprint. But it isn't only about what we do, it's about talking about stuff too. So eating lower down the food chain, eating more plants absolutely helps. If we do eat meat, fish is a lot better than mm. chicken. Chicken is a lot better than pork. Pork is a lot better than beef, especially if it's imported beef or industrially raised beef. That is really bad, not just for the carbon emissions, not just for water use, not just for resource use, um, but also for the animals themselves. So looking for free range meat when we eat meat, but also really amping up the plants, the fruits and the vegetables that we eat. And again, there's this really great app, especially if you live in the Toronto area, I'm so jealous, where you can actually get the ugly food or the food that they're not selling at the supermarket and they're just literally throwing out because it didn't look quite as pretty as the other food. There's an app you can use for that um, where you can, and I'll look for that quick and put it in the chat at the end. So if you want the name of that app, stay at the end and I'll find it because there's so many ways that we can change our diet to actually help others in many different ways. Wow, that's fantastic. Uh, the uh, And I'm going to mispronounce your name, so I apologize. The Soul Sight family asks, <laughs> people say electric cars are better for the environment, but are the processes such as mining cobalt for the batteries and the production of electricity needed to charge the batteries canceling out any of the benefits? So first of all, I just quickly Googled that app I was thinking about. It's called Second Harvest. Okay, so Second Harvest is what you want to look into. But electric cars are a great way to cut carbon emissions because about a quarter of our uh, emissions from burning coal, gas, and oil come from our transportation. And in Canada, we tend to drive quite a bit. Now, as long as our electricity doesn't come from coal, then electric vehicles are better. And nowhere in Canada, I don't think, does most of our electricity come from coal. Most of ours actually comes from hydro. I think there, there was only a couple of places in the U.S. even recently where it all comes from coal, and today that's changing quickly too. So electric cars are definitely better than gas cars, but if you have a gas car, if it's a very efficient car, that's a lot better than a less efficient one. Now, the batteries are made of rare earth minerals, and that is why it's so important that efforts like Tesla is spearheading to recycle batteries when they've reached the end of their lifetime are so important. We cannot afford to be wasteful with these valuable resources. And that is why when we do mine rare earth elements, it's important to do so in a way that is environmentally friendly, that isn't destroying the environment. Unfortunately, there's no free lunch when it comes to cars yet. There is no free lunch in terms of transporting ourselves right. magically around the planet without using some resources from this earth. 
But the resource extraction for batteries is like this in terms of its impact on the planet and on people. The resource extraction on humans from fossil fuels, actually my hand doesn't even go that high. <laughs> it's like this. Because as I said, you know, just burning the fossil fuels is responsible for 9 million deaths a year. So it's a case of, are we going to use this or are we going to use this? Uh, there's an interesting comment in the chat room by someone called Interested. So, uh, uh, but it, it's, they say this, this seems to be an intellectually robust talk designed to create a sense of urgency around climate change, thereby uh, representing one viewpoint. And they ask whether or not our church, one church, will have an equally scholarly qualified speaker to speak about an imposing view on climate change, or does one church only plan on leaving the issue one-sided being represented? And I, I thought about this often. I, I, I Thank you for asking that question, interested, because even as we've addressed issues about racial systemic injustice in this world, of course, we'll have people that will message and say, hey, what about the other view? And I, you need to understand what motivates me is not any sort of political agenda, whether it's left or right. I do believe what Dr. Paul, Scott Saul says, you know, Jesus was way too conservative for the liberals and way too liberal for the conservatives. It's the reason why we talk about these issues is because the scripture uh, compels us to uh, talk about these issues of justice, and we look for experts that will follow not just the science, but also our, our faith narrative. But you must deal with this a fair amount, and I wonder in your scientific community, uh, how many of your colleagues would be uh, percentage-wise, and I know that maybe, they're, maybe you can actually qualify this, or whether it's a generality, would actually be opposed mm -hmm. to uh, climate change? Yes, I can tell you um, that in all of North America, and none of them are in Canada, in all of North America, there are four scientists who have legitimate qualifications that would enable them to comment on climate change um, who would say that it is real, but it's not serious. Four. Four of them. On the other hand, there are thousands of scientists across all of Canada, the United States, Europe, and beyond, who would agree that climate is changing, humans are responsible, the impacts are serious, and action is needed. So you have four versus literally probably <laughs> at least, at least 4,000, probably a lot more. I actually curate a list on Twitter of 3,150 scientists who do climate, and I know wow. there's a lot more who are not on Twitter. So when it comes to two viewpoints, there are two viewpoints on matters of opinion. In, their, in terms of what's the best solution to climate change? How quickly should we act? Should we do this or that? Those can be opinions for sure. But on the question of is climate changing, are humans responsible, are the impacts serious? The answers to those are not opinions, they're facts. And so as Christians, we are called for truth. We are not called to weigh lies against truth and then say, oh, they could be equally valid based on my political opinion. We are called to look for the truth of what God's creation tells us. So that is what we do as scientists. And I want to leave you with a great resource, not just for interested, but for everyone else who's, who's also interested. There's a great resource called skepticalscience.com. It was created by a man who happens to be a fellow believer. His name is John. John's dad, every time he went home for dinner would be like, well, John, I hear there's more polar bears in the Arctic than there ever were, so how can you say that the Arctic ice is melting? <laughs> I just don't see that. So John decided to create the website that literally summarizes 198 science-y sounding objections to climate change and lists the scientific responses to each of those. 
But here's the interesting thing. Do you think that convinced his dad to change his mind? Uh, absolutely not. Because his dad's objections had nothing to do with the science, and they actually had nothing to do with Christianity either. They were 100% political ideology. So the story doesn't end there, though. A couple of years later, there was a rebate on solar panels in the area where John's dad lived in Australia. They're from Australia. And part of John's identity and John's dad's identity is being a fiscal conservative, you know, no, no points wasting money. The government's always trying to throw this money around. So he got solar panels to save money. He saved so much money that he was sending John his bill every month going, look how much money I saved. And then a couple of years later, they were having dinner together again. And in the course of conversation, his dad said to John, oh, yes, John, global warming. Of course, I've always thought that was real. But have I showed you my latest savings bill for my solar panels? And John said he nearly fell off his chair because his dad not only had changed his mind, but had forgotten that he ever disagreed with it because he now realized he could be part of the solution rather than the problem. And that's what changed his mind. Uh, that's so good. What a great story. And uh, what a great, uh, uh, interesting to see how a belief can be so strong that sometimes a belief can, can trump the facts that might be involved in it. And, you know, we, we, when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that's why we're attracted to truth. There's no, as we talked about last week, there's no truth that's going to get revealed at some point that God does go, says, well, I didn't know that, and that somehow God is not the revealer of all things that are true. So we wrap our belief around those facts and the facts of Jesus' death and resurrection that are well articulated historically, but also to uh, the facts of science and climate change. There's so many more questions. How's your time, Dr. Ayo? I can keep going for a little bit longer. Let's do this. Okay, let's, let's, let's motor through a few of these. Okay, so Pet asks, what are your thoughts about man landing and interfering on other planets? I thought that was pretty good because you're talking about ecological impact. What about on other planets? Well, it's so interesting because a lot of what I hear is people saying, oh, well, if we destroy the Earth, we can just move to Mars. And I'm like, well, good luck with that. <laughs> Terraforming Mars is, is, you know, an unbelievable level of effort compared to just fixing climate change here on Earth. And even if we did that, who would get to Mars? It would be the Elon Musks and the Bezoses of the world with their friends. It wouldn't be the 8 billion of us on this planet Earth, especially, again, the poorest and most vulnerable people who are already suffering the impacts today. So as Christians, I think we are very much called to love our mm. place and love our home. God has given us all of the resources we need to have responsibility over every living thing on this planet. And irresponsibly saying, oh, well, we'll just push the eject button when we're done. Right. That is not the responsibility that God laid on us. And if we can't even take care of our own incredible planet, how much of a good job are we going to do with other planets when we get there is my question. Let's look <laughs> greatest, to our own home first. Yeah, the greatest predictor of future behavior is past behavior, right? <laughs> so... Marcus asked this question, how do we ensure that local and indigenous peoples and their knowledge is always included in public policy and climate justice action? That's a big geopolitical type question, but we're looking at First Nations people, indigenous people. How, how can their voice be included in this? Well, that is something that is very near and dear to my own heart. I'm part of a big um, climate adaptation science center here in the south central United States, where we have several um, 
Native American tribes who are full members with our organization. And they bring a very broad and very unique understanding to this issue. Um, and there's fantastic resources if you're interested in learning more. Braiding Sweetgrass, for example, is an excellent book that you might be interested in. Okay. Um, there's also a lot of thought on how to integrate Indigenous knowledge and understanding into our theology. In fact, Dr. Terry LeBlanc, who is at Tyndale University in Toronto in North York, he, if you look up Terry LeBlanc, he has a lot of great resources on, um, as a believer and as a First Nations member, how we think about the earth, how we think about nature, how we think about God's creation, and how we think about future generations. Now, if you say, how can we be sure, there's no magic big red easy button that you could just be like, here, hand out the button, push it, and we can be sure. But what can we do? That means we all have a role to play, right. not only in using our own voices, but in elevating and promoting other voices, especially voices of people who might not be listened to and might not be heard, encouraging that they are brought into the conversation at every level. And this is not only an issue of justice, it's actually an issue of pragmatism, because it turns out that the more diverse viewpoints and perspectives we have at the table when we're talking about solutions to big problems like climate change, the more robust solutions we actually come up with. So it's really a win-win. Uh, following up on that question, similar to it, uh, Tanisha asks, climate change has a negative impact on vulnerable communities, as you've stated globally, but in many cases, they have innovative ideas about the climate that they have been using for centuries. Do you think that these communities can help with the impact of climate change? Oh, absolutely. And let me just give you two examples, but I'm so glad you asked that. And these are the types of stories that's great to learn about and share because they're so encouraging. So in some of the very driest areas um, in Northern Africa, they've created these things called fog nets that they, put, they have put up for a long time that collect the moisture out of the air overnight and that, that collect it so you can have it as water in the morning. And that's an ancient technique that helps people, especially at times where water is becoming more and more scarce um, and more and more difficult to get. Then in the Amazon, um, Native people in the Amazon have been practicing something where when they burn their agricultural residue and trees, they burn it and they plow those ashes back into the soil. And that is actually like one ag professor told me, he said, it's like miracle grow on steroids. Wow. It's called biochar. And because it's almost pure carbon, it's some of the best fertilizer you can imagine for making soils more fertile. So instead of just having a crop and then the soil can't yield anymore, so you have to go burn down more trees, have a crop, the soil can't yield anymore, go cut down, burn down more trees. Instead, if you take the remnants of those first trees and you restore the soil with that carbon, with biochar, it's an incredible fertilizer that puts carbon back in the soil where we actually want it. Mm. So now there's companies in California and Iowa who are creating biochar from agricultural waste. Instead of letting it just decay, you burn it at high temperature and it turns into this gray kind of powder and then you plow it back into the soil and it's an incredible fertilizer and it also helps put carbon in the soil instead of up in the atmosphere. So those are just two examples of the ways that people knew to do good things a long time ago and we can definitely learn from them. Well, so much of this is listening and informing ourselves listening to those uh, like yourself, but also listening to the cultures around us that have lived in some sort of equilibrium with the environment around them. Uh, uh, Tanisha, uh, uh, Tanisha asked a follow-up question that I thought was so good, we need to cover it. Often multinational companies have their industrial facilities in developing countries, which increases the pollution in those countries. However, it is not, ca not caused by the citizens. 
but often seem like it is by the citizens. What would be tips to change that narrative? That's a big question. Uh, it is. And that's part of why China produces so much pollution, so much <clears throat> carbon emissions, is because they're producing the goods that are used by the world. And we don't typically measure that. When we look at what we do in Canada, we don't include all the things that we import from other countries. So that's where, again, using our voices is really important as consumers, number one, in terms of what we do or don't buy and how we communicate and reach out to the companies that we do or don't buy from. There's many companies, you know, that have like fair trade labels and things like that. Right. There's also many companies that actually have sustainability goals and talk about what they're doing in terms of reducing their carbon emissions, water usage, paying people fairly and things like that. We can also um, look at where we invest our money, like you talked about too, where we invest our, our money in our mutual funds, our retirement. Where is that going? What corporations is that going to? And how sustainable are they? And of course, we can also talk to our communities, to our elected officials, to talk about the issues of sustainable consumption, to talk about um, how we can be good stewards of the resources that God has given us on this planet, both in our own country, as well as in other countries around the world, because we are all connected, aren't we? Yeah, uh, fantastic. Ermine asks this, uh, what can we really expect in terms of a percentage of climate change if everyone, everywhere, decides to follow the recommendations for better climate? Can we really go back to the way things were before? We can't go back to the way things were before because it's as if we've been smoking a pack of cigarettes a day for years and even decades. We have some spots in our lungs already. We have some decreased lung capacity. We have some of the impacts of climate change here today already, and we can't roll the clock back. But, and I actually study this personally, so I know this for sure. I do this myself. I know that there is the world of difference between a future where we continue to depend on coal, gas, and oil as our primary source of energy versus a future where we wean ourselves off those dirty, polluting sources of energy that also cause millions of deaths from air pollution every year. And we conserve our resources, our ecosystems, our food. We conserve those too, and we use them wisely. The difference between those two futures is not the planet. Like I said, the planet will be orbiting the sun long after you or I are gone. It is about the future of our civilization as we know it. And it is not too late to make that decision. If we could flip a magic switch today and turn everything off, we would still see 0.6 more degrees Celsius of warming because of what we've already put in the atmosphere. But if we can transition as soon as we can, and the government of Canada just announced just last week, right at the big Earth Summit, they announced a new target. They're upping the price on carbon. If we can transition as quickly as possible, and if we can figure out how to suck some of that carbon back out of the atmosphere, how? Low-tech ways like preserving ecosystems, restoring degraded ecosystems, planting trees. We have a lot of forests in Canada. High-tech ways. Like out in BC, there's a company who's figured out how to suck carbon out of the atmosphere and turn it into liquid fuel. Wow. That when you burn it, it just releases the same carbon back into the atmosphere Unlike when you burn gas, it releases carbon that was stored deep underground into the atmosphere. So there's low and high-tech ways to help turn back the clock a little bit, but we also have to cut the carbon that we're putting into the atmosphere today as much and as soon as possible. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, thank you. Uh, Anonymous asks this, can you share the science correlating fossil fuels to 9 million deaths? 
Yes, it is the burning of the fossil fuels that produces the air pollution. And it was a Harvard study that cited that. So after we're done chatting, I will go to the chat. And if you just hang out in the chat for a couple of minutes, I'll put a bunch of resources in there, links that you can look up more. And if you have any more questions on resources, put them there and I'll go through and I'll answer all of them before I sign off. Oh, thank you so much for doing that. That's fantastic. It's a great question, but uh, that's a great answer. And so we'll wait and get that in the chat room. David asked this, what is your view on the use of hydrogen for energy storage and as for transport, transport fuel? Ooh, we're getting very technical. This we is are. great. I should, I should um, just say with air pollution, it's the breathing in of the air pollution that damages our lungs. It leads to lung disease, heart disease, asthma, and other things like that. So those are the specific mechanisms connecting air pollution to illness and death. Right. So hydrogen is so interesting. It is, it is called green molecules. That's what they call it in Europe. Because you can make liquid fuel out of hydrogen that when you burn it, it just releases water. Nothing bad. So... As with any new technology, it's currently, we don't have all of the facilities set up to use it. It's currently in, in, often in the experimental stage, but that is a very real possibility for our future, especially if we can't electrify something. There's some things that are very difficult to electrify. We need liquid fuel. And so that's where hydrogen comes in. And if you go to Project Drawdown again, they'll have something there about hydrogen too. I'm so glad you asked that. That's a great question. In fact, you know what? I was actually just making a note to myself. I read quite a bit to try to keep up with everything. I was making a note to myself that I really need to do a deep dive myself into hydrogen solutions so I understand them better because a number of people I respect talk about them quite highly. So I want to know more myself. Yeah, I feel like uh, we we have a lot of, science people in our church that are geeking out in this moment. And so this, these are fantastic questions. You know, uh, someone mentions in the chat room, uh, Millie does, just about carbon tax. And is it a government money grab? And uh, uh, whether or not those pennies actually do go to clean earth environmental initiatives. And I don't know if you would know uh, how the governments uh, structure uh, those carbon taxes. Hmm. Well, the answer is, is that no, it is not just a money grab. I understand you might not like to vote for the Liberals, and that's a perfectly free choice. We have lots of different choices in Canada to vote for. But the reality is, is I analyzed, along with um, my colleague Andrew Leach, who's an economist in Alberta, I analyzed five parties' plans going into the last federal election in fall 2019, and so we had the Conservatives, we had, I didn't analyze the People's Party because their climate plan is to call climate scientists liars. That's their plan, okay. <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so we analyzed the Conservative Party, the Liberal Party, the NDP, the Green, um, and I think we looked at the Bloc Québécois as well. Um, and what we found was that every party had a climate plan, but unfortunately the Conservatives' plan was to increase emissions. Their plan would actually increase emissions, which doesn't work. It's like saying, I'm going to go on a diet by eating a lot more food. The fattier, the better. So I understand that you might not like the liberals, but here's the deal. A carbon price is something that just about every economist in the world, including the two who won the Nobel Prize for economics two years ago, agrees is the most effective way to reduce carbon emissions in a free market economy mm. without imposing draconian government legislation. In the United States, there's actually a bipartisan climate solutions caucus in Congress and the Senate. You might be shocked that there's a bipartisan anything in the States at this point, but there is, and they support carbon pricing. In fact, they argue for it very strongly. 
In terms of where the money's going, it's actually very transparent. The Globe and Mail, Chatelaine Magazine, all kinds of different outlets actually have explainers showing that some of it goes back to people in their taxes, especially in lower income brackets, so that they're not harmed in terms of the fact that they need food and they need gas and things like that. And some of it is used for infrastructure investments to help people make choices that make sense and that are easier to make. So we don't have to make an effort to be more uh, green. It's actually the easier option. Mm. So yes, these monies are being used in that way. And you know what? If you're conservative, and I've actually done this myself in my writing, I've actually written to my local candidate when there's an election. I'm like, I am in your writing, and I'm very glad that you're running. I would like to know how you plan to influence your party, whatever party you are, I write to all of them, how are you going to influence your party to help us fix climate change? So that's something that you can do. And the fact that we have some pretty small writings in Canada means that often they might answer you, right. whereas in the States, you don't often get an answer. So that's right. pretty cool. What a great answer. Thank you. A uh, couple more, and then we're going to shut it down because I know time, and you're going to jump in the chat room with a few okay. more resources for people. But, I, you know, listen, we haven't even tipped so many of the questions that have come in, but I'll, I'll give you a couple more. First off, uh, Anonymous asks, when you meet God, <laughs> I love this question, what's one scientific thing or topic you want to ask and have more understanding about? So this is just really, this is just about you, Catherine, in this moment. What is it? When you meet God, what is something you would like to understand or uh, whatever scientific thing or topic? What happens beyond the event horizon of a black hole? Wow. So there's the astrophysicist in you still? <laughs> yes, definitely. Because so the event horizon of a black hole is by definition the horizon at which no information can escape. So we have no way of ever knowing but God does. So that would be my first scientific question. See, I love that. You just went deep right there. Okay, Ahem asks, what passage from the Bible would you use to move us to action to affect climate change? Oh, that is a great question. And I have a verse, which is the one that motivates me. It's actually from the letter to Timothy. So the Apostle Paul was writing to Timothy and he gave him a very important piece of advice that I think we can all take to heart today. He said, God has not given us a spirit of fear. So when we see fear, when people are fear mongering, when we are, you know, react to something with fear, we have a litmus test. It literally says God did not give us the spirit of fear. That fear is not from God. And it goes on though. He doesn't end there. He said, God has given us three things. He has given us a spirit of power. Now that's a bit of an old fashioned word. And we're mm -hmm. like, well, what does that actually mean? What it means today in 2021 is empowered. So, so often our reaction to fear is to freeze, right? Fear often paralyzes us. But if we feel empowered, it means we're able to act. So God has given us the ability to act. That's a God-given gift, not to be frozen, but to act. How? The second gift is a spirit of love, out of compassion, caring for other people, not just keeping our gaze focused on ourselves, as you said. And then the last one is a sound mind to make good decisions based on the information that God has given us, some of which comes to us through his creation and through science. So we are not to be paralyzed out of fear. We are able to act with love and a sound mind. Aren't those incredible gifts? Listen, first time in 29 years of pastoring, I've seen that verse applied to climate science, and I loved it. <laughs> what, a, what a great scripture to motivate us towards that. Fantastic. Uh, Here's, here's one more question. Hannah Workman says this, 
Uh, how can we better resource ourselves in the topic of climate change and pollution and its impact on our lives? Now, obviously, you've given us a lot of resources to, to dig in. Uh, maybe, maybe just piggybacking on Hannah's question, how can we filter the information that's mm-hmm. media bites that are constantly coming at us? And obviously, the danger of Twitter or, or, or Facebook is our, the echo chambers that get created like, uh, how, do, mm-hmm. how do we filter the information that we're actually getting about climate change? Trusted sources are so important because so often, you're right, we can hear anything on the internet, literally anything. I mean, when it comes to COVID, you know, my husband gets calls from people saying, my husband actually has a Sirius XM radio show that's on all across Canada and it's on um, WDCX as well um, at seven o'clock every night or eight o'clock Eastern. And he gets calls from people literally saying, I heard the COVID vaccine will change my DNA. So God won't let me into heaven. Should I take it? And the answer is no, wherever you heard that, that is not a reliable trusted source. So when it comes to climate change, how do I find out more information? Well, on my website, number one, which is just my name, katherinehayhoe.com, they'll put it in the chat. I have more resources under my frequently asked questions. We have a great little series called Global Weirding on YouTube that answers about 35 commonly asked questions. It's great, by the way. um, Oh, thank you. I'm making season five right now. We have one episode specifically on Canada, of course. Um, And then um, in terms of following people on social media, I have that list of 3,100 scientists who do climate on Twitter you can subscribe to. I have a list of organizations who act on climate because of their faith on Twitter that you can subscribe to. Organizations like NASA are very trustworthy, obviously, if they can put man on the moon. (laughs) Don't you think they know about climate change? And um, in terms of legitimacy, if you see Dr. So-and-so saying something, always check to see what Dr. So-and-so's credentials are in. Right. Because so often I hear people saying, well, Dr. So-and-so said X about climate change. And I'm like, oh, let's look at what Dr. So-and-so's expertise is in. Dr. So-and-so, it turns out, has a degree in Scottish history. So if I had questions on Mary, Queen of Scots, I think that their opinion would be very important. But on climate change, I'm going to go with the experts on that. So checking our sources is really important. Don't just because somebody has a YouTube video, don't assume it's correct, even with mine. Check your sources. Right. And I have resources on my page that help people do that. I mean, that's so good. We've been journeying through COVID like every other church. And we were blessed to have an epidemiologist a part of our, our community. Mm-hmm. And we, she, even in conversation with her, it's been great just talking about, she said, Jonathan, if you broke your arm, you don't want me setting it. If, if, if someone's delivering a baby, you don't want me there because there, there are people with specialties in that area. But all I've studied is vaccines and pandemics. That's my area. And that, it really does help us to distinguish between the expertise because doctor is a broad title for a specific mm-hmm. area of expertise. And we're so glad that you made the time to be with us at One Church CO. And Catherine, I followed your work for quite a while. Uh, a few years ago, I actually heard you speak in another uh, church setting and it inspired me. And then on Twitter, uh, following you since. And I was so thankful that you agreed to join us this weekend. We're richer because of it. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. God bless you. Take care. 
Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time. Thank you.